Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. How good it is to be together here in Estes Chapel to worship our God on this first week of the Easter season. And we are still in Easter. No doubt, we are still in Easter. It is not over yet. Although we do look to Easter as a day, a specific Sunday in our calendar, it also lasts for a whole season, stretching until Pentecost. In the Easter season, we look to the risen Christ and celebrate him. But we also look to his church as resurrected people who live a resurrected spirituality. Because of Easter, we as the church are in union with Christ, and we are called to live out our baptismal identity in Christ's resurrection. Therefore, the importance, the significance, the power of Easter cannot be communicated in just a single day. It takes a season. This morning, I want to reflect for just a few moments on the essential connection between Easter and Christian baptism. For Christians, like Easter, the sacramental rite of baptism is the defining act of initiation into the new creation. It is the sign of divine grace that serves as the basis for all Christian life and faith. In baptism, we are fashioned into the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are united to the church, and we are inaugurated into a new permanent reality, and this reality illumines our entire existence, namely new life in the risen Christ. It is thus crucial that we understand the gravity and the worth of our baptism. This year at Asbury, we are focusing on the life of discipleship. And if we are truly to understand the life of discipleship, we must look to our baptism, because there is an indivisible relationship between discipleship and the sacrament of baptism. Jesus Christ himself affirms this correlation in the commission we just heard read that he gives to his disciples in Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Notice Jesus' directive in Matthew 28. While at first it might seem that he issues three imperatives in his command, go, baptize, teach. He, in fact, offers only one, disciple. The main verb he uses, disciple, describes the goal of the work that he sends his disciples out to do. The participles that he applies, baptizing and teaching, qualify the means that his disciples are to use to reach this end of discipleship. Basically, Jesus' sole command to his, disciple is, to his disciples is to go forth and disciple others. The manner by which they are to do the discipling is baptizing and teaching. Specifically, baptizing into the name of the Trinity and teaching obedience to Christ's commands. Baptism and education, or the word catechesis, as we might hear it said sometimes here at Asbury, Baptism and education thus play a central role in the disciple-making process. So this way that Jesus orients discipleship in the Matthew 28 commission is, is noteworthy. 
especially as he diverges from previous forms of discipleship in those ancient cultures. In an ancient Jewish context, it was common for rabbis to take on and educate disciples of their own, who might in turn become rabbis themselves and then pass down traditions to their own students. The highest hope, honor, and privilege of a student in a rabbinic school was to become a rabbi with one's own disciples to instruct. As new rabbis became teachers for new generations, they began new schools where they would foster their own new disciples. In Matthew 28, however, Jesus initiates a different paradigm. He begins by reminding his disciples that he has the ultimate authority. Therefore, he is the one true teacher. He then commissions his disciples to go forth, not making disciples of themselves, but rather making disciples who are identified in the name of the triune God, which is confirmed in baptism, and who are obedient to Jesus' commands learned through catechesis. In doing so, Jesus establishes himself as the standard of discipleship. In other words, all discipleship points back to him. To be a disciple requires submission to Jesus' authority and to Jesus' teachings. His disciples never take on the role of rabbi themselves. Instead, their status as a disciple is perpetual. Nonetheless, Jesus still empowers his disciples for disciple-making. In particular, Jesus introduces not a top-down model, but rather a model by where discipleship requires disciples investing in one another. His disciples are not broken into separate schools, but rather remain united as a body, his body. Discipleship is done communally, and it takes place within a relational context. Everyone has equal standing as they devote themselves to mutual growth in Christ-likeness. Christian discipleship, therefore, is nothing less than learning how to live into and live out one's baptism. Let me repeat that. Christian discipleship is nothing less than learning how to live into and live out one's baptism. Let me explain what I mean by that statement. To put it another way, discipleship is learning to live in constant remembrance of one's baptism. Joined with Christ in the waters that he once and for all sanctified, baptism is the sacramental act of initiation and conversion. It is the gateway through which a person enters into life with Christ, life in the church, and the lifelong pursuit of holiness. Discipleship is essential to baptism because baptism initiates discipleship. And discipleship is the constant process of being converted into what baptism represents. Primarily, baptism is both initiation and conversion into the life and death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The person and work of Jesus and the meaning of his death and resurrection are the principal emphases of the rite. The Apostle Paul claims as much in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. 
Do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. In this passage, Paul contends that the act of baptism exemplifies and embodies a Christological reality that gives perspective to the entirety of the Christian life. Likewise, baptism makes serious claims about the Christian approach to death. On the one hand, baptism is indicative of the physical death and new resurrected life the Christian will one day experience in the corporeal body, in the bodies that we have right now. Baptism serves as a reminder to the Christian that death is prevalent and will one day claim every single one of us, just as it claimed Christ. However, it also offers comfort, acknowledging that death does not have the final word. Since the Christian has been united with Christ in his death, they will also be united with him in his resurrection. Every Christian funeral, therefore, is representative of baptism. The deceased person is identified as one who has now entered into the fullness of their baptism. They have reached complete union with Christ, who has accepted them into his death as to be purified, healed, and freed of death itself. Likewise, the Christian has joined with Christ in new resurrected life, following in both death and resurrection where Christ has led. On the other hand, baptism signifies a spiritual death in life, death to sin, and the reality of a new life known in Jesus Christ. Baptism is indicative of the saving work of Christ in the present moment. Not just a future reality, but a present moment. While the act of baptism itself is not salvific, its proper observance places an individual in a context where salvation is realized and actualized, namely the context of relationship to Jesus Christ and Christ's mystical body, the church. Therefore, the task of baptism is to be the starting point on the road to salvation. Accordingly, baptism is not just a past event of something that happened. It doesn't just point to a future event, but it is, I'm sorry, it's not just a past event of something like that, but it's also a future-oriented event that points to God's work of salvation through grace, a salvation that both saves from future damnation, but also saves us to the uttermost in the here and now, continually freeing us from the guilt and the power of sin. When we as Christians make use of the grace of God initiated in baptism, we find ourselves converting from a life of sin to a life of holy love. Such growth and grace persists throughout the entirety of our lives as Christians. And it leads us on to perfection. Baptism, therefore, functions alongside of discipleship in the Christian life as an effective sign of salvation, an effective means of grace, an effective 
pledge of the glory that is to come. It is important to recognize that Paul's association in Romans 6 of baptism with Christ's death and resurrection presents baptism as the act by which new spiritual life is drawn. Wesley states in his notes on Romans 6 that through faith the baptized person is engrafted into Christ and through his spirit fashioned into Christ's likeness. This union with Christ in baptism has a specific consequence, walking in newness of life. Baptism, therefore, is representative not only of a future resurrected reality, but also of the present and active commitment to Christ showed through Christ-like living, showed through holiness. The disciple gradually grows in holiness until perfected in love. To put it another way, the sacrament of baptism instigates what discipleship develops and preserves, namely a life of saving faith and a life of holy love. As we sit here in this Easter season, then, it is an appropriate time for us to remember our baptism. And by remember our baptism, I don't mean just a cognitive recollection of the act that once happened. I mean an acknowledgement of the reality of Christ's work within us. When we remember our baptism, we come mindful of what baptism means, what it signifies. It is participation in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, both in our death and future resurrection, but also our death to sin and our walking in newness of life. It is an acknowledgement that we are citizens of Christ's church, and so we commit ourselves to live according to Christ's teaching and to his commandments. Baptism is a symbol that says we are unified with one another in Christ as Christ's body. No matter our race, no matter our nationality, no matter our gender, baptism marks us as equals. No divisions exist among us. Usually here, right in the middle of our worship space, we have this baptismal font that sits filled with water that has been consecrated where we might come and dip our hand to remember that we are baptized. Not that we were baptized, but that we are baptized. Unfortunately, during COVID, we can't do that. However, there's another place where we come regularly to remember our baptism, our unity with Christ, to remember our pledge to grow as his disciples. Here at this table, through bread and wine, we are nourished for our walk as Jesus' disciples. We are reminded that baptism has initiated us into Christ's death and resurrection, and that the table sustains us as we walk in newness of life. So as you partake in Christ at the table this morning, I ask you, remember your baptism. Remember that you are baptized. And be thankful. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.